Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 46. Well, the end of Alma, chapter 44, brought us to the end of a miraculous Nephite victory. Moroni and his armies were so outnumbered on this occasion by the Lamanites that they were equal in number to the Amalekites and Zoramites alone, those Amalekites and Zoramites that were within the Lamanite army. But emboldened by the just cause of, or as Moroni said to Zarahemna in Alma chapter 44, verse 5, quote, our faith, our religion, our rites of worship, our church, the sacred support which we owe to our wives and our children, that liberty which binds us to our lands and our country, of the maintenance of the sacred word of God to which we owe all our happiness, and by all that is most dear unto us. Moroni and his armies confronted the Lamanites in the strength of the Lord, to borrow a phrase that was first used by Zenith as they invaded the land of Manti. This brought us to a point of resolution in this story. We were told in verse 20 of Alma chapter 44 that Moroni took the weapons of war from the Lamanites, and after they had entered into a covenant with him of peace, they were suffered to depart into the wilderness. Then, during this short period of relative peace between the Nephites and the Lamanites, we turned the page to Alma chapter 45. Here we found that the text returned to spiritual matters. Mormon gave us a view of the records transfer between Alma and Helaman, Alma's prophecy of the Nephite nation, Alma's departure from mortality, and reforms to the church that took place at the beginning of Helaman's tenure as chief priest. Verse 21 referred to this as a regulation made throughout the church. Well, it was at this point that we learned, and almost parenthetically, that not all Nephites were receptive to these changes. And so we read at the end of the previous chapter in verses 23 and 24, And now it came to pass that after Helaman and his brethren had appointed priests and teachers over the churches, that there arose a dissension among them, and they would not give heed to the words of Helaman and his brethren. But they grew proud, being lifted up in their hearts because of their exceedingly great riches. Therefore they grew rich in their own eyes and would not give heed to their words to walk uprightly before God. With that as a background, we will see a different view now of the same event as chapter 46 begins. This time, however, this same dissension will be described from a military and political perspective. It is here where we begin to realize that this is actually a violent rebellion. It's similar, in fact, to the one that was precipitated by Amlici in Alma chapter 2, and that this rebellion will have implications for the remainder of the rest of the book of Alma. We read in the opening verses of Alma, or we read, we will read in the opening verses of Alma chapter 46, 
And it came to pass that as many as would not hearken to the words of Helaman and his brethren, so we're talking about this same dissension that was mentioned at the end of the previous chapter, were gathered together against their brethren. And now behold, they were exceedingly wroth, insomuch that they were determined to slay them. So the first verse there is familiar, and it sounds just like what we had just read at the end of Alma 45, but the second verse makes us realize that these dissenters were determined to slay those who stood in their way. It is at this point, then, that this dissension marked the ascension of a new character named Amalekiah. This is Captain Moroni's enemy and antithesis, really, in this and all chapters up to his death. Mormon introduces Amalekiah in this chapter by saying, quote, Now the leader of those who were wroth against their brethren was a large and a strong man, and his name was Amalekiah. Mormon then makes it clear that Amalekiah's ambitions were similar to Amlicite's. Again, Amlicite was discussed in Alma chapter 2. As verse 4 tells us, he too was desirous to be a king. We'll learn in subsequent chapters that Amalekiah's story is only beginning, and that his ambitions to be king, and in fact, the verse we just read said to be a king, those ambitions extend even further. Mormon will later tell us in Alma chapter 47, verse 8, that it was Amalekiah's intention to gain favor with the armies of the Lamanites that he might place himself at their head and dethrone the king and take possession of the kingdom. So we could say that the scope of Amalekiah's ambitions becomes ever widening as this story goes on. So we'll come to that in subsequent chapters. Amalekiah will accomplish things as this story goes on through fraud and subterfuge that are hard even to imagine, really. He becomes a prototypical example of a scriptural character that uses his talents of charisma and leadership and persuasion to manipulate others in a quest to satiate his ever-growing lust for power. And again, this lust just expands and expands. This will become more clear to us as we return to Amalekiah's story in Alma chapter 47 and follow it from there to his death, which, by the way, is death by stabbing in Alma chapter 51. And, of course, that's done by Teancum, and we'll learn more about him later as well. Well, returning to the dissensions of this chapter in Alma chapter 46, we can see again that the uprising or dissension that was described at the end of Alma chapter 45 was something that would put the Nephite nation in a state of considerable peril. As Alma chapter 46 verses 7 through 9 will tell us, quote, Thus they were led away by Amalickiah to dissensions, notwithstanding the preaching of Helaman and his brethren, yea, notwithstanding their exceedingly great care over the church, for they were high priests over the church, and there were many in the church who believed in the flattering words of Amalickiah. Therefore they dissented even from the church, and thus were the affairs of the people of Nephi exceedingly precarious and dangerous, notwithstanding their great victory which they had had over the Lamanites and the great rejoicings which they had had because of their deliverance by the hand of the Lord. Thus we see how quick the children of men do forget the Lord their God, yea, how quick to do iniquity and to be led away by the evil one, yea, and we also see the great wickedness one very wicked man can cause to take place among the children of men. This is the context for what would rightly be considered as the main feature of Alma chapter 46, which undoubtedly is Moroni's title of liberty. What follows for the remainder of the chapter, once this is introduced then, is the way in which Moroni quells this uprising within the Nephite nation, or this violent rebellion led by Amalickiah. 
Verse 12 tells us that Moroni rent his coat and he took a piece thereof and wrote upon it in memory of our God, our religion and freedom and our peace, our wives and our children, and he fastened it upon the end of a pole. What will follow in Alma chapter 46 is a calibration, really, of the Nephite people to the cause for which they must fight. Alma chapter 45 told us of the spiritual calibration of Helaman's regulation of the church. This title of liberty incident is a call to patriotism, really. It is Moroni's reminder to the people that because of the war in which they are engaged, they must choose to fight in order to preserve the liberty and protection that their nation enjoys. The spiritual implications of that are obvious for us because we too are engaged in a battle between good and evil, like it or no. And for us to preserve our liberty, it's also necessary to fight. There are also many modern parallels to draw as we read this account, and we will look at many enlightening pieces of commentary as we do that. Well, now to look at the structure of Alma chapter 46. In the first section of this chapter, in verses 1 through 5, we find that this Nephite dissension, which was introduced to us in the previous chapter, is explained further we discover that it's based upon Amalickiah's desire to be king. In verses 6 through 10, we discover that many were drawn to Amalickiah. That includes those who were of the church. Verse 10 will tell us that Amalickiah was talented indeed. He was a persuader. He was a man, it says, of cunning device and a man of many flattering words. And so he led the way the hearts of many people to do wickedly. Mormon's language is interesting in this verse 2. Um, or I should say in this verse as well, it's in verse 10, that Amalekai had the intention of destroying the foundation of liberty, which God had granted unto them. And that's similar language to what we read when we learned about the lawyers in the city of Ammonihah. Alma chapter 10, verse 27 said, And now behold, I say unto you that the foundation of the destruction of this people is beginning to be laid by the unrighteousness of your lawyers and your judges. So attacking Nephite society at its foundations is a tactic of the adversary and those who work for him. So as Mormon told us in this earlier section, this was a perilous time for the Nephites. And now as we come to verse 11, we see Moroni's response to this perilous situation. He creates what he calls the title of liberty. This is in effect a flag, but it comes from his coat. It's a piece of his coat, and he actually wrote upon it. And it says, in memory of our God, our religion and freedom and our peace, our wives and our children. And then he fastened it to the end of a pole. This takes us up through verse 13. And then we discover that Moroni prays, and he does so mightily, as it says, in behalf of the Christians, those who espouse this cause that he has articulated, and also the land itself. In verse 16, it says that Moroni prayed that the cause of the Christians and the freedom of the land might be favored. Then as part of this event, in verses 17 and 18, Moroni designates Nephite lands as a chosen land of liberty. It says in verse 17 that he named all the land which was south of the land of desolation, uh, all the land both on the north and on the south, a chosen land and the land of liberty. At this point, beginning in this section that extends from 19 through verse 22, Moroni gathers all willing people And they make a covenant. The language of that covenant is given in verse 22. And it says, We covenant with our God that we shall be destroyed even as our brethren in the land northward if we shall fall into transgression. 
Yea, he may cast us at the feet of our enemies, even as we have cast our garments at thy feet to be trodden underfoot, if we shall fall into transgression. This reference to those who are in the land northward seems to be a nod to their understanding of what happened to the people of Jared. But in doing this, Moroni will also bring images of other ancient prophets and ancient peoples. And very interestingly, in verses 23 through 27, Moroni will speak specifically of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who had the coat. And a coat, as it says in verse 23, that was rent by his brethren into many pieces. Then he talks in 24, verse 24, about how these Nephites are actually a lineal remnant of Joseph and that a remnant of Joseph's seed was to be preserved just as a remnant of the garment of Joseph was to be preserved using Jacob's language there. So this language gives us great insight into the meaning of Joseph's coat and the expectations for Joseph's posterity that were well understood by this particular leader who had access and was clearly well-grounded in the teachings of the brass plates. At this point, we read in verse 28 that all willing parties at this point who will covenant in such a manner are gathered throughout the Nephite lands. And now with all of this established, we come to verse 29 and we turn our attention back to Amalickiah. We find that he is leading his followers towards the land of Nephi. So to be clear, this is a dissenter within the Nephite nation, like Amlicite, and he wants to take down the leadership of the Nephite nation and become king himself. However, now that Moroni has done the things that he has in rallying the people and having them enter into a covenant that reminds them of the obligation they have to protect their land, Malachi discovers that he is facing a very large army now. It says in verse 29 that his people were doubtful concerning the justice of the cause in which they had undertaken. So, in the previous uh, sequence in Alma chapter 43 and 44, we can see there that Moroni and his armies were outnumbered, but they were emboldened concerning the justice of their cause. Whereas here, the Amalekiahites are doubtful concerning the justice of their cause. This, of course, is an important contrast for us as we read through this. Here then, in verse 29, is what Amalekiah decides to do about this. It says, Therefore, fearing that he should not gain the point, he took those of his people who would, so those who still were not doubtful and would still follow Malachiah, he took them and departed for the land of Nephi. Well, this poses an obvious problem, because if Amalekiah goes to the land of Nephi with his followers, then he will join the numbers of the Lamanites, just like the Zoramites did uh, not too long before. But what's really concerning about Amalekiah is that he has the capacity, clearly, and we will see this later, to stir up the Lamanites to anger against the Nephites so that they'll come against them again. And so we'll, we'll read more about that in uh, Alma chapter 47. But for now, as the story goes on, we're going to see how Moroni, in verses 30 through 32, cuts off the course of the armies of Amalickiah, because now they're headed for the land of Nephi. In other words, they're going to join with the Lamanites. Moroni, as it says in verse 30, did not want them to have any more strength, didn't want the Lamanites to have any more strength, and so he cut them off. Verse 32 says that he marched forth in the wilderness and headed the armies of Amalickiah. So this seems to have put an end to this uprising, and we see in verse 33 through 35 that Amalickiah's army is at this point 
taken back to Zarahemla now that they've been cut off. And most of them do enter into a covenant of peace. Now, those who will not enter into a covenant of peace are actually executed. Verse 35 will tell us that those who would not enter into a covenant to support the cause of freedom, that they might maintain a free government, Moroni caused to be put to death. And there were only a few who were in this category, is what verse 35 tells us. What we also see from this passage, however, is that there is another group of people. So there are those who entered into the covenant and returned to Zarahemla. There are those who were executed because they would not enter into this covenant. But then there were a few with the Malachiah, and they fled when they were cut off by Moroni and his armies. And this is going to be the source of a great deal of trouble in the future. So we'll come back to that when we turn to Alma chapter 47. Now, what results from this putting down of this uprising is actually a four-year season of peace. Uh, And we read about this in verses 36 through 38. So we're really coming to a resolution here of that uprising or that dissension that was first mentioned at the end of Alma chapter 45. Here as we come to the end of Alma chapter 46, and we see how Moroni has dealt with it, and he's done so successfully. And again, four years of peace follow this incident. And uh, again, we'll turn to Alma chapter 47, and uh, most unfortunately, we'll discover that Amalekiah still lived after this, and he had some followers, and they did make it into the land of Nephi. As we'll see, it was really only necessary that these few made it into the land of Nephi, or in other words, into the Lamanite kingdom, to start a great deal of trouble in the future. In this context of a season of peace, in verses 39 through 41, which are the three final verses in this chapter, We read that many died during this time, and they died of fevers and also of old age. And so we'll read of that when we come to it, and we'll kind of wonder why this inclusion is even here. And perhaps part of that is because those who did die were notable. The timing would be about right that there could have been some very important characters to the record keepers at this time that died during this four-year season. Well, moving back now to the beginning of the chapter for a reading, here is verse 1. And it came to pass that as many as would not hearken to the words of Helaman and his brethren were gathered together against their brethren. So again, we're coming back to this dissension. And now behold, they were exceedingly wroth, insomuch that they were determined to slay them. So again, this is the first time that we realize that this is a violent uprising. This is more than just an ideological difference in the way that it was presented in the previous chapter from the perspective of church reformation. It's even worse still. Uh, Behind all of this, we have a man named Amalekiah, who we'll read about in verse 3, that wants to topple the government and become a king. Hugh Nibley has written that this group of dissenters consisted of those who refused all instruction because of their exceedingly great riches, as we are told at the end of Alma chapter 45. And they gathered together as a hate group, exceeding wrath, to plan the extremist measures against those who stood in their way. Then there were passionate monarchists who not only were of kings, but being of high birth, sought to be kings. Now we'll read that phrase, high birth, and how they too sought to be kings in Alma chapter 51 everyone in line for the throne. After them were those who may not have claimed royal blood, but nevertheless professed the blood of nobility, whether they could prove it or not. So Nibley's commentary there kind of expands our idea. 
as to what is meant in the previous chapter by their love of riches and their unwillingness to be pliable and to listen to the word that is preached by Helaman. Now, verse 3, now the leader of those who were wroth against their brethren, or in other words, the leader of this uprising, this dissension, was a large and strong man, and his name was Amalekiah. So we'll learn that Amalekiah is more than just physically imposing, but that he is also very talented in the arts of persuasion and flattery. Hugh Nibley wrote, Amalekiah is one of a line of brilliant troublemakers who keep things stirred up. Beginning with Laman and Lemuel, we meet in order Sherem, Amulon, Nehor, Amlesai, Zeezrom, Korahor, Zarahemna, and now, neither last nor least, Amalekiah. All of these men had certain traits in common. All were personally ambitious and unscrupulous, aspiring to be either king or the religious head of the people. All were powerful speakers and clever propagandists, skilled in the use of flattering words. All sought to undermine, if they could not seize, the highest authority of the church and state, being particularly opposed to popular government and drawing their support from those who sought to overthrow it. Now, Reynolds and Sojal have written this, Amalekiah, conspicuous for his military ability, nevertheless failed in his strategy when he neglected to lead his soldiers into battle. His presence there undoubtedly would have urged them to deeds of valor in forwarding his plans, which otherwise in accomplishing them they contributed nothing. He did not care for the blood of his people in spite of the calculated loss. And uh, this comment by Reynolds and Sojal will manifest, or it will it will uh, show to be true, as we go all the way through Alma chapter 51. Now, we learn more about Amalekiah here in verse 4. And Amalekiah was desirous to be a king. And those people who were wroth were also desirous that he should be their king. And they were the greater part of them of the lower judges of the land, and they were seeking for power. So these were people that already were in a position of power, and they're seeking for more. And they had been led by the flatteries of Amalekiah, that if they would support him and establish him to be their king, that he would make them rulers over the people. Very interesting. So Amalekiah has influence over these judges and is playing upon their desire to be more than judges. So Amalekiah is a manipulator of men. Now, we find that there are also those within the church that are drawn to Amalekiah. Going into verse 6, Thus they were led away by Amalekiah to dissensions, notwithstanding the preaching of Helaman and his brethren, yea, notwithstanding their exceedingly great care over the church, for they were high priests over the church. And there were many in the church who believed in the flattering words of Amalekiah. Therefore they dissented even from the church, and thus were the affairs of the people of Nephi exceedingly precarious and dangerous, notwithstanding their great victory which they had had over the Lamanites, and their great rejoicings which they had had because of their deliverance by the hand of the Lord. Verse 8, Thus we see how quick the children of men do forget the Lord their God, yea, how quick to do iniquity, to be led away by the evil one. So there is one of uh, Mormon's editorial comments, as he says, and thus we see. President Spencer W. Kimball used to say that the most important word in the English language may be remember. And and notice that in verse 8, it says how quick the children of men are to forget. Thomas Arvaletta has written that the Book of Mormon constantly iterates and reiterates, Oh, remember, remember. The Baal Shem Tov, leader of Hasidic Jewry in Eastern Europe over two and a half centuries ago, 
made a famous remark that for many years was emblazoned in giant letters at the exit of the Yad Veshem Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. Quote, forgetfulness leads to exile, but remembrance is the secret of redemption. Verse 9, Mormon's editorial commentary continues, Yea, and we also see the great wickedness one very wicked man can cause to take place among the children of men. Ogden and Skinner concur with this comment by saying how great the wickedness one evil man can cause. 20th century examples include Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, and Saddam Hussein. Verse 10, Yea, we see that Amalekiah, because he was a man of cunning device and a man of many flattering words, that he led away the hearts of many people to do wickedly, yea, and to seek to destroy the church of God and to destroy the foundation of liberty which God had granted unto them, or which blessing God had sent upon the face of the land for the righteous' sake. In considering the question of why the Nephites keep finding themselves at war, which is a question that Thomas R. Valletta asks in his Book of Mormon Commentary, he provides this commentary from Gerald Hansen from his work called Book of Alma as a Prototype. He said the irony of the wars in the Book of Alma is that the Nephites were righteous enough to win the wars, but not righteous enough to prevent them from taking place. According to President Spencer W. Kimball, God had given a special promise to the Nephites, which is valid to all the peoples of America. If they would stay sufficiently righteous, they would not have to fight. Both the war with Zarahemna and the one with Amalickiah began at a time when many Nephites, including members of the church, had hardened their hearts. Now, this commentary from Matthew Hilton and Neil Flinders, most of the armed conflicts in the Book of Alma, reports, can be classified as extension of policies driven by two conflicting ideologies, vertical and horizontal. First, there were conflicts led by educational, legal, and military leaders seeking to impose by force a horizontal philosophy on a people and culture that accepted a vertical tradition as valid and legally binding. Second, there were conflicts led by those seeking power, the elimination of the church and destruction of the foundation of liberty, which God had sent upon the face of the land for the righteous' sake. Inasmuch as the lower judges of the land favored these objectives, those associated with the order of Nehor may have at least influenced, if not corrupted, the legal society of the Nephites at large. We do know that an angel from God told Alma that those who followed the order of Nehor and Ammonihah were actively studying to destroy the liberty of the Nephite people. The second kind of conflict arose during the time of Moroni and his title of liberty. Together, these two general groups of conflicts offer insights as to the effect and impact of the radical shift in assumptions of cultural and philosophical heritage and the war policies that the prophet historian Mormon reports in the Book of Alma. Now as we come to verse 11, we see Moroni's response. And now it came to pass that when Moroni, who was the chief commander of the armies of the Nephites, had heard of these dissensions, he was angry with the Malachiah. Ogden and Skinner have written that here, and in Alma chapter 47, we are told of a traitor to the Nephites and his opposition to the things of righteousness. Amalekiah was a Nephite by birth, descended from the church of God, and eventually became king of the Lamanites. A little spoiler there. His lust for power motivated him to use his talents to bring about evil and misery. He was cunning and believed in flattery. Flattery appeals to vanity. It is cynical and a tool used to manipulate people for selfish purposes. It advances ulterior motives and is adversarial. It is different from a sincere praise or compliment which validates the honest work of others. 
Now here's what Chief Captain Moroni does in verse 12. And it came to pass that he rent his coat, and he took a piece thereof and wrote upon it, In memory of our God, our religion, and freedom, and our peace, our wives, and our children. And he fastened it upon the end of a pole. Here is commentary from President Howard W. Hunter, and then a few different pieces from President Ezra Taft Benson on this concept of freedom. The only way we can keep our freedom is through our personal righteousness, by handling that freedom responsibly. Now this from President Ezra Taft Benson. Freedom and liberty are part of the gospel plan. Any program or philosophy that would destroy a person's free agency is not of God. Freedom is an inherited, God-given principle. It has always been planned that God should have in his plan that men should be free. Righteousness, as the Book of Mormon states, is the indispensable ingredient to liberty. I fear, said President Benson on another occasion, our souls do not joy in keeping our country free, and we are not firm in the face of faith of Christ, nor have we sworn with an oath to defend our rights and the liberty of our country. Moroni raised a title of liberty and wrote upon it these words, In memory of our God, our religion, and freedom, and our peace, our wives, and our children. Why didn't he write upon it, Just live your religion. There's no need to concern yourselves about freedom, your peace, your wives, and your children. The reason he didn't do this was because all these things were a part of his religion, as they are of our religion today. Should we counsel people, live, just live your religion? There's no need to get involved in the fight for freedom. No, we should not, because our stand for freedom is a most basic part of our religion. This stand helped us get to this earth, and our reaction to freedom in this life will have eternal consequences. Man has many duties, but he has no excuse that can compensate for his loss of liberty. Now, continuing with Moroni's story, verse 13, And he fastened on his headplate and his breastplate, and his shields, and girded on his armor about his loins. And he took the pole which had on the end thereof his rent coat, and he called it the title of liberty. Dean Garrett has written, It does not take long for a people who are full of pride to forget the Lord their God and be led away by the evil one. One wicked individual can cause great wickedness to take place among such a people. On the other hand, one righteous person can make a difference in such a setting. Captain Moroni reacted to this situation by making a banner. He prayed fervently to the Lord. This became such an important time for Moroni that he challenged all his supporters to enter into a covenant. Interestingly, we're about to encounter the use of the word Christians in this passage in Alma chapter 46. Here's an article from fairmormon.org that's provided from Thomas Arvaleta. It's called, Is It an Anachronism that the Book of Mormon Teaches that Christians Existed Before Christ? It's a very interesting question. The English word Christians is not the word that was originally on the Nephite record, but is the English word that Joseph Smith used when translating the original Nephite word. The word Christian simply means Christ-believer in common use and in the Book of Mormon. We don't know what the original Nephite word was for Christian, but it signified something like Christ-believer. The word Christ is a Greek word that means the same thing as the Hebrew word Messiah. Thus, anyone who believed the prophecies would have been a Messiah-believer. Therefore, all pre-Christian-era Israelites who believed in the coming Messiah Christ were Christians in this sense. Now that Moroni has done this, and he's fastened his headplate and his breastplate in verse 13, and rent his coat and uh, constructed this title of liberty, 
Verse 13 goes on to say that he bowed himself to the earth and he prayed mightily unto his God for the blessings of liberty to rest upon his brethren so long as there should be a band of Christians remain to possess the land. For thus were all the true believers of Christ who belonged to the church of God, called by those who did not belong to the church. And those who did belong to the church were faithful. Yea, all those who were true believers in Christ took upon them gladly the name of Christ, or Christians as they were called, because of their belief in Christ who should come. This perhaps is language that King Benjamin could have used as well uh, when he talked so much about taking the name of oneself upon them, the name of Christ, and that was his stated purpose for his temple address. This commentary comes from the Book of Mormon Institute manual with reference to Alma chapter 46, verses 12 through 15 that we've just read where the title of liberty has been introduced. Rallying others for a righteous cause takes courage. President Ezra Taft Benson often taught concerning the importance of Captain Moroni's actions in raising the title of liberty. He frequently emphasized the need to be an active citizen and promote liberty and freedom. Improve your community, he said, by active participation and service. Remember in your civic responsibility that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, which is a statement by Edmund Burke. Do something meaningful in defense of your God-given freedom and liberty. President Benson further taught in that sacred volume of Scripture, the Book of Mormon, we note the great and prolonged struggle for liberty. We also note the complacency of the people and their frequent willingness to give up their liberty for the promises of a would-be provider. Moroni, like the prophets whose words are recorded in the Book of Mormon, spoke of the Americas as a chosen land, the land of liberty. He led the people in battle who were willing to fight to maintain their liberty. And the record states that he caused the title of liberty to be hoisted upon every tower which was in all the land. And thus Moroni planted the standard of liberty among the Nephites. That is our need today, to plant the standard of liberty among our people throughout the Americas. While this incident occurred some 70 years B.C., the struggle went on through 1,000 years covered by this sacred Book of Mormon record. In fact, the struggle for liberty is a continuing one. It is with us in a very real sense today. Well, we can also surmise that this use of the word Christian is connected with the renaming of the people, which is um, consistent again with what King Benjamin did, but is also consistent with covenant making, which we'll see here in a bit. First, this commentary from Jennifer Lane. As in the Old Testament, renaming is also understood to be part of a covenant in Nephite culture. When Moroni rallies the people of Nephi with the title of liberty, all those who were true believers in Christ took upon them gladly the name of Christ, or Christians as they were called. In the Book of Mormon, the making of covenants is usually connected with taking the name of Christ upon oneself. This practice connects the idea of renaming as a change of nature with the idea of renaming as adoption because a new name was also an indication of adoption in the ancient Near East. Verse 16, And therefore at this time Moroni prayed that the cause of the Christians and the freedom of the land might be favored. Verse 17, And it came to pass that when he had poured out his soul to God, he named all the land which was south of the land desolation, yea, and in fine, all the land both on the north and on the south, a chosen land, a land of liberty. Land of liber- so here Moroni is kind of drawing boundaries and delineating what this free land is, calling it again a land of liberty. Ogden and Skinner have written, Moroni, righteously indignant, prayed mightily and poured out his soul to God. His display of patriotism and the message of his title of liberty have modern parallel in the words of Francis Scott Key. 
Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved ones' homes, between their loved homes and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us as a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause is just. And this be our motto in God we trust. Excuse me, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner, as Moroni's title of liberty, in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Moroni prayed that the cause of the Christians and the freedom of the land might be favored. He labeled the land north and south, the chosen land, and the land of liberty. The first recorded use of the term Christian in the Old World occurred in the post-resurrection period of the Apostolic Church in Antioch. That's recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. So here Ogden and Skinner are taking their turn at addressing this use of the term Christian. But the term was used in the New World a century earlier, and we might add that the first Christians or believers in Christ who should come were actually our first parents, Adam and Eve. So they're saying it's not unusual for those who predate Christ to take that name upon them. Verse 11, And he said, meaning Moroni said, Surely God shall not suffer that we who are despised because we take upon us the name of Christ shall be trodden down and destroyed until we bring it upon us by our own transgressions. Now Moroni will begin to gather the people and have them make a covenant. Verse 19, And when Moroni had said these words, he went forth among the people, waving the rent part of his garment in the air, that all might see the writing which he had written upon the rent part, and crying with a loud voice, saying, Behold, whosoever will maintain this title upon the land, let them come forth in the strength of the Lord and enter into a covenant that they will maintain their rights and their religion, that the Lord God may bless them. And it came to pass that when Moroni had proclaimed these words, behold, the people came running together with their armor girded about their loins, rending their garments in token, or as a covenant, that they would not forsake the Lord their God. Or in other words, if they should transgress the commandments of God, or fall into transgression, and be ashamed to take upon them the name of Christ, the Lord should rend them, even as they had rent their garments. Now, this was the covenant which they made. And they cast their garments at the feet of Moroni, saying, We covenant with our God, that we shall be destroyed even as our brethren in the land northward, if we shall fall into transgression. Yea, he may cast us at the feet of our enemies, even as we have cast our garments at thy feet to be trodden underfoot, if we shall fall into transgression. So this is covenant-making language, and we saw that a couple chapters back as well. As to this rending of the clothing, uh, coming into the activity itself and this covenant-making that took place, Thomas Arvaletta himself has written a, a work called Captain and the Covenant, and he quotes from it here, Rending or tearing clothes is customary in ancient oaths. Terence Zink has found comparable rights in the ancient world. Uh, he suggests that the oath of the Nephite army described in Alma chapter 46, verses 21 through 22, is similar to a number of Near Eastern oaths that have taken that have two characteristics. First, they are self-excretive in nature. The party making the covenant or treaty takes upon himself a conditional curse, swearing that if he fails to fulfill his part of the agreement, he is willing to endure a specified punishment. Second, they are accompanied by various rites that in some way symbolized the punishment to be inflicted. Sacrifices accompanied the oath in connection with the covenant, according to M. H. Pope, which may be the origin of the Hebrew idiom to cut a covenant with someone. He explains, quote, 
In the sacrifices of the covenant, the animals were cut in two, and one or both parties passed between the pieces. We can read about that in Genesis chapter 15, verses 10 and 17. In Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18, those who break the covenant with the Lord are told that they will be made like the calf with which they cut in two and passed between its parts. This suggests that the oath which the bound parties to a covenant may have stipulated in the conditional curse that the violator should be treated like the sacrificial animal. This imagery illuminates the divine warnings of an impending sword to come down upon a covenant-breaking Israel. For example, in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 25, we read, quote, And I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. And when ye are gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence among you, and ye shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Metaphorically and historically, a covenant-breaking Israel faced the terrible prospect of a punishing sword. As would be expected for divinely-led Israelite transplants, covenants constituted the core of religion, society, and government in the sacral world of the ancient Nephites. To assert that Captain Moroni is better understood within the tradition of a covenant people is not a particularly radical thought. The living prophet of his day, Alma, was prone to quote the covenant promise and cursing revealed centuries earlier by Father Lehi, quote, Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. And again it is said that inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. This prophecy from Lehi was repeated over and over by the Book of Mormon prophets to remind the Nephites of their responsibilities as inhabitants of the promised land. Here is yet more commentary on this covenant-making gesture by these people, specifically with respect to the way in which they cast clothing at another's feet. Uh, First this by Thomas Arvaleta once again. While 20th century readers correctly view this moment as a time of great patriotism, it is important to note that any such feelings of the Nephites were founded in their covenants. Hugh Nibley has said, Treading on one's garments while making a covenant follows a forgotten but peculiar old Jewish rite. Another writer writer noted, and this is Donald Perry, Book of Mormon prophets carried on the old world tradition of performing symbolic actions that revealed a prophetic curse. The incident of the title of liberty was much more than a rally behind a standard. Moroni rent his coat, wrote upon it the title of liberty, placed it upon a pole, and went forth among the people, waving the rent part of his garment in the air that all might see. After this dramatic act, Moroni likened his rent coat to the garment of Joseph that had been rent by Joseph's brothers and proclaimed, Let us remember to keep the commandments of God, or our garments shall be rent by our brethren, and we be cast into prison, or be sold, or be slain. A curse is clearly implied. Those who fail to keep the commandments of God would be imprisoned, sold, or slain. Those who witnessed Moroni's symbolic activity responded in turn with another symbolic action by casting their garments at Moroni's feet and then promising not to fall into transgression, lest God cast us at the feet of our enemies, even as we have cast our garments at thy feet, to be trodden underfoot. Dr. Hugh Nibley reported a study indicating that the treading of one's garments underfoot was, quote, an ancient ritual practice in which a person, upon becoming a member of the church, would take off his garment and trample on it in token of having cast away an old way of life and as a symbol of trampling his old sins underfoot, with curses placed on the insider to sin. The custom is an original and very old Jewish rite, probably to be traced back to Jewish exegesis of Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. It has all the marks of being archaic and shows that peculiar blend of ritual and real-life behavior, which puts such a distinctive stamp upon some of the historical events in the Book of Mormon. 
Now moving back to verse 23, here's where Moroni will speak of Joseph of Egypt, or Joseph of old. Moroni said unto them, Behold, we are a remnant of the seed of Jacob. Yea, we are a remnant of the seed of Joseph, whose coat was rent by his brethren into many pieces. Yea, and now behold, let us remember to keep the commandments of God, or our garments shall be rent by our brethren, and we be cast into prison, or be sold, or be slain. Yea, let us preserve our liberty as a remnant of Joseph. Yea, let us remember the words of Jacob before his death, and behold, he saw that a part of the remnant of the coat of Joseph was preserved, and had not decayed. And he said, Even as this remnant of garment of my son hath been preserved, so shall a remnant of the seed of my son be preserved by the hand of God, and be taken unto himself, while the remainder of the seed of Joseph shall perish, even as the remnant of his garment. Now, Ogden and Skinner have written, These verses attest to the use of garments, or even fragments of garments, as symbols of covenant-making or witnessing and affirming certain actions. Treading upon one's garments is an ancient ritual practice attested in early Christian Coptic texts, where individuals become members of the early church by trampling their clothes as a token of trampling old sins or the old life. It is traced back to the Jewish interpretation of Genesis chapter 3. Verse 24 attests that a remnant of Joseph's coat was preserved beyond his being sold into slavery into Egypt. Jacob prophesied regarding the seed of Joseph by using his son's coat as an object lesson. We have only a remnant of this prophecy preserved in a current Old Testament. Joseph's coat or garment was an emblem of his primacy in the priesthood, and evidently it had special markings on it. Now, finally, this commentary from Joseph Fielding McConkie in his book Gospel Symbolism. Moroni spoke of an ancient or of an incident in the life of Joseph of Egypt, which has been lost to the Bible record. He told them that as Joseph's coat had been rent into many pieces by his brothers in their bitterness, so his people would be rent by their dissenting brothers if they were not true to their covenant. The word dissenting there is interesting because it figures so prominently into this part of the narrative in the book of Alma as well. Moroni then said that Jacob had prophesied before his death using the remnants of Joseph's coat as a type. Jacob noted that part of what had been brought him had decayed, while part of it had been preserved, and he prophesied that part of the seed or remnant of Joseph would likewise be destroyed, while part would be preserved. Of course, we can go to the book of Genesis. We can go to Genesis chapter 49, where uh, Jacob tells Joseph that he is as a fruitful bough whose branches run over the wall. And it seems that in the purer or more complete version from the brass plates, that more indeed was said. And uh, we want so much to know as much as we can about Joseph of Egypt. He's such an important scriptural character for us, and yet we have such a paucity of information on him. We have the great story of Joseph as it's related in Genesis. Then we're also very lucky to have portions of his words in 2 Nephi chapter 3. Now this, coming from Captain Moroni, this great God-fearing, covenant-making military leader, also uh, gives us more insight into Joseph of Egypt and uh, what happened with this remnant of his coat. Then we have this fascinating piece here, which seems to be a quote from the brass plates in verse 25. Now behold, this giveth my soul sorrow. Nevertheless, my soul hath joy in my son, because of that part of his seed which shall be taken unto God. And now behold, this was the language of Jacob. 
So we're getting the language of Jacob here from Captain Moroni, of all people, this military leader. And we're getting this lost remnant of something that Jacob said that's not currently in our Old Testament. Verse 27, And now who knoweth but what the remnant of the seed of Joseph, which shall perish as his garment, are those who have dissented from us? Yea, and even it shall be ourselves if we do not stand fast in the faith of Christ. Here's commentary from the Institute Manual on this amazing prophecy regarding Joseph's coat. The torn coat of Moroni, the title of liberty, was a reminder of the preserved remnant of the coat of Joseph of Egypt. Moroni declared that the Nephites were a remnant of the seed of Joseph and would only continue to be preserved as long as they served God. President Joseph Fielding Smith commented on the symbolism and prophecy regarding the preserved part of Joseph's coat being fulfilled in our day. Quote, We are told that there was a prophecy in the destruction of the coat of many colors worn by Joseph. Part of it was preserved, and Jacob, before his death, prophesied that as a remnant of the coat was preserved, so should a remnant of Joseph's posterity be preserved. That remnant now found among the Lamanites shall eventually partake of the blessings of the gospel. They shall unite with the remnant which is being gathered from among all the nations, and they shall be blessed of the Lord forever. That's out of President Joseph Fielding Smith's work, The Way to Perfection. Now, verse 28, And now it came to pass that when Moroni had said these words, he went forth and also sent forth in all the parts of the land where there were dissensions, and gathered together all the people who were desirous to maintain their liberty, to stand against Amalekiah and those who had dissented, who were called Amalekiahites. So all willing parties gathered throughout the Nephite lands at this point. The Nephite lands were very large and very large. Very cinematic way, uh, yet it's uh, quite interesting to consider how uh, this covenant was made by people from so far away and how uh, th- this, this movement was communicated to people throughout the Nephite lands. At this point, we return to Malachiah. Now that we've contrasted uh, these two characters, Amalekiah and Captain Moroni, and what a sharp contrast it is. So now we're going to learn about uh, Amalekiah's descent and how at this point he wants to actually uh, leave uh, Nephite territory and go into the land of Nephi, which um, can sound confusing, but we remember, of course, that the land of Nephi is the land of the Lamanites. So verse 29, And it came to pass that when Amalekiah saw that the people of Moroni were more numerous than the Amalekiahites, And he also saw that his people were doubtful concerning the justice of the cause in which they had undertaken. Therefore, fearing that he should not gain the point, he took those of his people who would and departed into the land of Nephi. Well, this could say that he departed towards the land of Nephi because he didn't make it into, or at least the greater part of his armies did not make it into the land of Nephi. Uh, The statement is also true, however, because as we'll discover, Amalickiah and a select few others did make it into the land of Nephi which is um, a point that will be picked up on in the next chapter. As I mentioned in the flyover summary of this uh, particular chapter, it's quite interesting here that here's a group of people that are outnumbered, these Amalekiahites, as they are now named. They're outnumbered, and they're doubtful concerning the justice of their cause. Whereas in the previous battle, in Alma 43 and 44, those Nephites, too, were outnumbered by the Lamanites, but they were not doubtful concerning the justice of their cause, but instead were emboldened by it. So a very interesting comparison is to be found there. Now, verse 30, we'll see that Moroni doesn't want this to happen. He doesn't want all of these dissenters to make their way to the Lamanite kingdom. 
Verse 30, Now Moroni thought it was not expedient that the Lamanites should have any more strength. Therefore he thought to cut off the people of Amalekiah, or to take them and bring them back, and put Amalekiah to death. Yea, for he knew that he would stir up the Lamanites to anger against them, and cause them to come to battle against them, and this he knew that Amalekiah would do, that he might obtain his purposes. Therefore Moroni thought it was expedient that he should take his armies, who had gathered themselves together, and armed themselves, and entered into a covenant to keep the peace. And it came to pass that he took his army, and marched out with his tents into the wilderness, to cut off the course of Amalekiah in the wilderness." Ogden and Skinner have said this verse reminds all freedom-loving nations in our modern day that sometimes we have to maintain armaments to keep the peace. It is ironic but true. Righteous nations have to fight for peace. The Mormon miracle pageant presented annually for decades on the Temple Hill in Manti, Utah, includes this memorable idea, quote, Through all the years of peace, Moroni never disarmed. You cannot compromise with evil. If you do, evil always wins, unquote. Verse 32, And it came to pass that he did according to his desires and marched forth into the wilderness and headed the armies of Amalekiah. So he, in this case, is Moroni, and he was able to catch up and to get in front of these armies of Amalekiah. And it's in this verse where the word armies is used, uh, whereas previously the, the term Amalekiahites was used, and we wondered just how many there were. But armies, plural, is used here, suggesting that there were a great deal of people that were on the run with Amalekiah to the land of Nephi. So Moroni is successful in cutting them off. In verse 33, And it came to pass that Amalekiah fled with a small number of his men, and the remainder were delivered up into the hands of Moroni and were taken back into the land of Zarahemla. So this is another one of these moments as we read about the exploits of Captain Moroni, where the, the head of the snake is not dispatched, it's not killed, but instead escapes. Um, he he. This kind of happened with Zarahemna in the previous incident, and it's happening now with Amalekiah. He escaped, and he did make it to the land of Nephi, as it says in verse 33, with a small number of his men. So we'll see what the ramifications of that are later. Lynn D. Wardle has written, There are times when firmness, even physical compulsion, is necessary to stop dissenters. In times of war, when internal rebellions threaten the lives and liberties of the people, when ample opportunity to repent has been afforded, the use of military force under righteous leadership to put down treacherous dissent has been justified. The righteous only resort to slaying dissenters when the dissenters had undertaken to do something that immediately and seriously threatened the lives and liberties of the righteous innocent who would not agree with the dissenters. Verse 34. Now Moroni, being a man who was appointed by the chief judges and the voice of the people, Therefore he had power according to his will with the armies of the Nephites to establish and to exercise authority over them. And it came to pass that whomsoever of the Amalekiahites that would not enter into a covenant to support the cause of freedom, that they might maintain a free government, he caused to be put to death. And there were but few who denied the covenant of freedom. So again, to summarize, Moroni cut off Amalekiah and his armies. Most of his armies were captured at this point and were directed back to the land of Zarahemla, where they either made a covenant or they were executed. And a very small part of them, it seems, were executed. However, when these armies were cut off, Amalekiah himself, with a small number of his men, uh, fled and did make it into the land of Nephi. To this statement that some were put to death, Ogden and Skinner say, In times of war, those who refused to submit to the cause of freedom, who willfully and knowingly continued to seek to subvert the cause of freedom and agency, 
or who remained defiantly rebellious, were justifiably put to death. One is reminded of General George Washington executing subverters and traitors to the American cause during the Revolutionary War, even though they were members of the Continental Army. Hugh Nibley writes about this same incident in his book Approaching Zion. The fiction has been diligently cultivated that Moroni on this occasion put all the pacifists to death. Those put to death were not those who had refused to take up arms to defend their country, but those who had taken up arms to attack it and who were on their way to join the enemy across the border, glad in their hearts when they heard that the Lamanites were coming down to battle against their country. They were dissenters to the enemy. Pacifists? They were all members of Malachi's army, armed to their teeth, on their way to join the enemy when Moroni caught them. Armed violence, not pacifism, had been their program from the beginning. We can sum up the issue by referring to Alma chapter 51, verse 17, quote, And it came to pass that Moroni commanded that, it, that his army should go against those kingmen, to pull down their pride and their nobility and level them with the earth, or they should t- take up arms and support the cause of liberty. It was a coalition of the important people, the persons who lifted the sword to fight against Moroni. It was a pitched battle, not an execution. If you had arms in your hands and were fighting, then if you didn't lay them down, if you didn't surrender, as in any war, you had to suffer the consequences. Insomuch that as they did lift their weapons of war to fight against the men of Moroni, they were hewn down, and those of their leaders who were not slain in battle were taken and cast into prison. That's still coming from Alma chapter 51, verses 18 through 19. The remainder yielded to the standard of liberty. In a later battle, the men of Pacus received their trial according to the law, and also these kingmen. Whosoever would not take up arms in the defense of their country, but would fight against it, were put to death. That was uh, stated in Alma chapter 62, verse 9. They were all fighting men taken with weapons in their hands, refusing to give them up. So Nephi is expanding what we're uh, told here about those who were put to death and helping us realize that these weren't simply just pacifists. So this is kind of the end of this uprising as we come to chapter, or excuse me, to verse 35. And now we discover in verse 36 that a four-year season of peace ensues. And it came to pass also that he, Moroni, caused the title of liberty to be hoisted upon every tower which was in all the land, which was possessed by the Nephites, and thus Moroni planted the standard of liberty among the Nephites. There's an interesting connection here between garments and covenant making that we've talked about in this chapter. And here we can see that a flag itself is also uh, kind of a token in a way of a covenant that has been made. That is certainly the case here with the title of liberty as it's hoisted upon every tower which is in the land. President Editor Taft Benson explained, This is our need today to plant the standard of liberty among our people throughout the Americas. While this incident occurred some 70 years B.C., The struggle went on through 1,000 years covered by the sacred Book of Mormon record. In fact, the struggle for liberty is a continuing one. It is with us in a very real sense today, right here on this choice land of the Americas. Now verse 37, And they began to have peace again in the land, and thus they did maintain peace in the land until nearly the end of the nineteenth year of the reign of the judges. And Helaman and the high priests did also maintain order in the church, yea, even for the space of four years did they have much peace and rejoicing in the church. So four years is a significant time here as we look at all the warring that has taken place across a much shorter or more condensed timeline. So this shows us that Helaman did have quite a measure of success as the new chief priest. 
And as he established order in the church, that order and that um, reforming that was discussed at the end of Alma chapter 45. Now we're given this very interesting three-verse inclusion at the end of Alma chapter 46, beginning in verse 39. And it came to pass that there were many who died, firmly believing that their souls were redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus they went out of the world rejoicing. Uh, to that idea of leaving the world rejoicing. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland explained that these people died rejoicing because they knew firmly that their souls had been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name they had taken upon themselves and whose gospel they had tried to defend. So we see in this instance really the power of this covenant that had been made, and uh, we see the power of Helaman's priesthood efforts to bring the church to the people and to call new priests and teachers and to shore it up and to create reform. And then, of course, the results of Moroni's efforts to defend the freedom of the land. Verse 40, And there were some who died with fevers, which at some seasons of the year were very frequent in the land, but not so much so with fevers because of the excellent qualities of the many plants and roots which God had prepared to remove the cause of diseases to which men were subjected by the nature of the climate. This creates a side interest, of course, this verse. Ogden and Skinner have said that this shows us, perhaps, that God has prepared excellent quality plants and roots to remove the cause of diseases. And also here of interest to Book of Mormon geographers is this revealing comment regarding the climate of the Book of Mormon lands, which caused seasonal fevers. Hugh Nibley also offered commentary on this interesting verse. He did this on his teachings of the Book of Mormon. He said, The plants and roots which God had prepared could conquer the fevers. Quinine wasn't discovered until 1840. Nobody knew that the quinine bark would cure these fevers until then. They didn't know what could cure them. They didn't know about mosquitoes or anything else. There are these occasional flashes of background in the Book of Mormon, which, for the most part, concentrate intently on the issues of salvation. But here it just happens to note in passing that it was fever country, and there were diseases to which men were subject by the nature of the climate, which was tropical and humid. The fevers were held under control by the most excellent quality of the plants. Then the final verse, verse 41, But there were many who died with old age, and those who died in the faith of Christ were happy in him, as we must needs suppose. So these last few verses kind of bring us to an interesting end point and an interesting point of resolution. Um, the whole chapter brings us to a point of resolution because of the way that this uprising is finally put down uh, with, uh, with the knowledge, we have to say, though, that we know that Amalekiah did escape to the land of Nephi, and we'll read about that in the next chapter, of course. But here it may be that these instances where people died of old age during this period might be included here, and remember that Mormon is abridging all of this, because there were several notable characters that died during this time. Perhaps uh, this is pure conjecture, of course, but maybe it was Ammon or Aaron or Omner or Himni. Maybe it was the sons of Mosiah or others of their generation. Uh, we don't know for sure, but for some reason, it was relevant here for Moroni to point out that there were many who died of old age. Well, we come then to the end of this chapter and to this point of resolution. We're so happy to see that there was a four-year period of peace and that Moroni's efforts bore such fruits and that so did Helaman's efforts. And so it's, uh, it's a new day when we turn the page and discover that Amalekiah is still um, alive and well and that his ambitions and the scope of his ambitions are simply broadening. Uh, but until then, we'll enjoy the end of this chapter. So this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 46. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. 
I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.